my name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ plus citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. Greetings and welcome. My name is Eric, a host of Our Black Gay Dies for a Podcast. Welcome to another great episode. For this conversation, I am joined by Australian Byron Adu. Byron is a senior policy and project manager for a governmental agency in Melbourne, Australia. Originally from Adelaide, the capital city of South Australia, a state in the southwest region of the country, Byron and his sister are two of the contestants on season two of Hunted Australia, which is currently airing on Network 10. Hunted is an Australian reality television series based on the British reality television series of the same name. In 2010, Byron was crowned Mr. Gay Pride Australia, later becoming the first runner-up in the 2010 Mr. Gay World competition held that year in Oslo, Norway. He's also the founder of Every Minority, quote, a platform to share and showcase the diverse stories and experiences of people in Australia with a particular focus on LGBTIQ plus POC communities, end quote. I discovered Byron through his February 2021 article published on SBS or Special Broadcasting Services website titled, I Tried to Be a Homie, but I Just Wanted to Listen to Brittany. I look forward to learning more about Byron's professional life and the accolades his journey so far as a gay Australian. Hey, Byron, and welcome. How are you? Hello, I'm well. How are you going? I'm doing well. <laughs> How's your day been so far? I think you're at the end of the day in Australia. I am. Yes, it's been a it's been a long day. We're in winter here at the moment, so Melbourne's weather is very temperamental. So it goes from very cold to a little bit of sun, and then it's back to being cold again. But I'll just quickly start off because I like to acknowledge country. So I'm coming from Wurundjeri country. So they're the traditional owners of the lands um, where I live, uh, the First Nations people. So they're from the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to to elders, past, present and emerging. What's the name again? Wurundjeri people, the Kulin Nation. So the Aboriginal people that were traditionally here before colonization happened. Oh, that's good that that's been acknowledged, and, and thank you for that. Yeah, I'm currently in Cape Town, South Africa, which in some ways has a similar history with colonialism and also slavery here. I always think of Australia as being very deserted. I'm not sure if that's the case where you're at. No, it's pretty residential, pretty built up. Um, but yeah, if you go more inland, then it's quite desert. You go further up the coast, you have rainforests and the Great Barrier Reef and all these beautiful things. So it's quite a um, diverse landscape, actually, because it's such a huge country. So much going on. Where you are right now, I love Cape Town. It's the first place that I was really felt connected to in the world. When you say connected, what do you mean? It was really the first time that I saw a lot of people that looked like me and I felt part of a broader community, I guess. Like I was only there for, you know, just under two weeks, but just to be around that and not feel different or strange or kind of people making assumptions about the way I might speak or any of that kind of stuff. So it was a beautiful place for me. 
Yeah. I'd like to ask you more about that later with growing up in Australia. But, you know, I mentioned in the intro that I identified you as gay, but I didn't leave that to you. How do you identify under the LGBTQIA umbrella? I identify as gay as well, which I feel is almost very old school now because it's more common for people to say queer. But um, there are to me some differences between the two. So I'm still still under the gay umbrella. <laughs> I'm definitely being educated in a different way with the way that, for me, the younger generation is discussing identity and sexual, or not just sexual orientation, but gender expression, gender identity. So if we could start with the present, I know that it's being aired currently in Australia, Hunted Australia, the name of the series that you and your sister are on. Can you share a little bit about what it is? Yeah, well, they just had the season finale last night, so the the winners have been, I don't want to say crowned, but they, they won. So it's a reality TV show which is described as the biggest game of hide-and-seek. So the idea is that there are teams of two people and who those two people are varies. So for myself, it was with my sister. Other people, it was with their friend. They were kind of father-son, aunt-niece partners, that kind of thing. It's a national TV show, but it's based in, in Melbourne, where I'm, or Victoria, where I live. Dropped off in a, a location and just told to disappear for 21 days. And there's a whole set of rules around that. Okay. So uh, in terms of how you communicate with people and how often you have to move around and other things you do. And there's a team of investigators that have experience working with the police or kind of in elite forces, the army. And they're tasked with trying to track down these teams and find them. So once they find a team, that team is then eliminated from the game. It's a three-week period. If you make it to the end of three weeks, then you win a share of the cash prize. And then obviously as time goes on, it becomes harder and harder to to hide because there's fewer teams and more people looking for you. I always say this one word, describe it as a roller coaster because going into a there was a bit of stress for a number of reasons, but also a lot of excitement. And then once you start, it's like, this is real. And um, the paranoia is real. And you never know what's going to happen next and who's onto you or if they're not onto you and those kind of things. So it was, uh, yeah, special experience. There are about 10,000 people that auditioned and my sister and I were lucky enough to be chosen wow. to, uh, to be on it. Okay. So if I'm understanding correctly, the public is part of the game too. Yeah. So you can um, go up to somebody on the street and say, can we sleep at your house tonight? Or can you give us a lift to another part of Victoria? Can we make a phone call? Can you give us food? Any of that kind of stuff. So there could be strangers. But then also you can use your social networks to help as well. But there is, of course, a risk with that because these hunters, as we call them, kind of clue in very quickly to who are important people in contestants' lives. So then if you do reach out to people that you know and trust, um, there's a risk that they're being followed or phone calls are being listened to and then you could kind of give away your location. But then you know them and trust them. So there's that kind of balance as well. It's like, do I go with a stranger who might dot me in or not do the right thing or go with someone I know? So you've got to keep moving around and um, using different, yeah, different people. It sounds very much like a Jason Bourne fantasy. <laughs> yeah. 
If it was a fantasy, then it becomes a nightmare when you realize how stressful it is and you're thinking, okay, what do I do next? Like, what does the next couple of, what do the next couple of hours look like? Or where will we be tomorrow? Um, it was an amazing experience to do it with my sister because we had that ability to kind of, got someone to kind of sound things out with. But then there is that stress as well because you're kind of thinking like, what does she want to do? What do I want to do? You're thinking about your teammate as well as yourself. So there's a lot to consider. What did you and your sister learn about each other as a part of doing this experience? So doing the show for each of us was kind of to do something a little bit different, like stuck in a bit of a routine and the same, same for quite a few years in, in some ways. And for us, our relationship, um, we were very, very close growing up. And then the last several years we did drift because we have different things going on in our lives. She's a, a parent and I have my own things. So it was a way for us to bond in a different way and kind of get to know each other again in a, in a different way. Because it really has been the two of us. We've moved around a bit when we were kids, obviously being biracial and growing up in a small town in Australia. It was like her and I and, you know, that were the only ones that kind of were similar in our kind of views of the world or how we look. And so, yeah, we had that close bond, then we drifted, and then this was that experience to kind of bring us back together, which sounds a bit strange to do a stressful reality TV show as a way to uh, bond more, but for us it actually turned out to be a really good thing for our relationship. Yeah, we've got really incredible memories and matching tattoos as well. So to commemorate our time on the show together. Uh, so there's a few things. In hearing you share about like, you know, this is coming back together. It makes me think of those, those times in childhood with our siblings when, you know, the playtime and the, and the ways that we bond through sometimes being adversaries to our parents. Cause it's like, yeah, we're going to, we're going to stick together. You know, it's us against them, that type of thing. Yeah. I've had so many people say to me, I could never have done that with my sibling just because of the dynamics and the arguments or the distance that they might have with them. Our family situation was really unique, I think, for a number of reasons. But yeah, I mean, I grew up single parent household and our mum is white Australian and we did move around quite a bit. So it was always the only constant really was my mum and my sister in my life in terms of like relationships with people when I was younger. Well, those are the stories we read, the movies we watch. <laughs> it's definitely very relatable. Um, yeah. So you mentioned moving around that you are born or you're from Adelaide. Born in Adelaide. My mom is from Adelaide as well. My dad is from Ghana in Western Africa and he moved to London when he was in his, we don't quite know exactly his age, but somewhere in the kind of early 20s. And my mum moved to London as well to study her nursing degree. And so they met in London. There's a whole side story I could tell you about a secret family my dad had that only came out about 10 years ago. But he was with my mum, but also had a secret family in London. And then he and my mum moved to back to Adelaide. And then had my, myself and then my sister. She's two years younger than me. So my se parents separated after my sister was born and um, dad loved Adelaide for a bunch of different reasons. At that point, he was one of the few black or African men in Adelaide. 
mum and some, my sister and I, you know, lived, I think we went to about six or seven different schools and lived in about nine different homes, like moving homes in Adelaide. And then we lived in Sydney, which is one of the biggest cities in Australia. Lived there for five years when we were early teens then came back to Adelaide. So there was, yeah, a lot of movement. I relate, and I'm not just saying that, we moved around a lot. Even though I'm from Arizona, we moved around in the city and the state and then sometimes outside of the state. So I can definitely relate to that. Also, not a secret family, but not to take the focus off of you, but just to say, you know, I, I connect to that that part of your story. I found out after my mother passed, I, I had been kind of whispered around in my in my 20s that my dad was not who she said he was. And I found him and he never knew about me. And we had that moment together. So I oh, definitely wow. uh, connect to those family um, secrets or, or skeletons in the closet, those, those types of things. Yeah. That's amazing. Do you have a relationship with him now? I did. He passed away in 2007. I wasn't close to my mother. I'm the one that looks the most like her, but we, I, we were not that close and spent forever trying to figure that out. But my dad, when I met him, I always say I was looking for my father and I found my dad. He was he was uh, such a difference to what I was used to. And I, I'm very grateful for the time we had together. And then growing up with not a lot of close family around me, all of a sudden I had this huge family through my father's side and I've known them less time and I've gotten closer to, to them than I have to the family that I grew up with. So it's, it's interesting. That's beautiful. Yeah. It's a, a pleasant surprise. So I have siblings through my dad in London, a couple of there, and then a couple more in Adelaide. But um, it's been really nice, even though we only connected 10, 12 years ago or something like that. Particularly the ones in London, we have a close relationship, which is a kind of a lovely bonus from this like suddenly the family the sibling numbers have grown that then there's those um not just siblings but we're also have a friendship as well and stayed over there a bunch of times with them and our sisters come over here and stayed here so it's been um it's been really been really good have you noticed any not just physical similarities but like personality traits that you see in them that maybe are you or your sister I think it's interesting that just in terms of kind of our sense of social justice and kind of where our political inclinations are all on the same side of the spectrum, which is, that could be as much to do with nurture as nature, but it's something that I feel is kind of intrinsic to us. Our dad was a social worker and I mean, my mom's a nurse, so there's kind of already that bit of tendency, but yeah, even with the siblings in Adelaide and, and London, there's that. It's one of those things that if I ask someone who knows us or has met all of us that could probably point out some of the similarities, but it's an interesting question because I guess it's something I hadn't really thought about too much. I relate to that. Like with my dad, it was, it was instant. To be fully conscious of that type of connection was interesting. I do have a brother from my dad and my stepmom. I don't notice the similarity a side profile every now and again, I'll catch something. Oh, okay. Maybe I noticed that. But with my dad, definitely when I was out with him, people right away, they knew I was his son are getting comments from relatives like, oh, you guys walk the same way or 
these types of things. And it's like, oh, okay, this is interesting to be fed this information as an adult. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it? It's, it's fascinating. Um, and I don't know about you, but I, I loved that. Like, so my dad, I didn't have anything really to do with him growing up. I could have counted on two hands the number of times I saw him from zero to 22 or 23 years old. And then he became really ill and he was in a nursing home for several years before he passed away. And just that time in there and I, even things like how he slept, it was very similar to how I would sleep, like positioning and that kind of thing and some of the faces he'd make when he'd eat and all this kind of thing. I was like, ah, like I kind of um, learned more about him and also about myself from that. Hmm. Nice, nice. We've been talking about your dad, but, you know, you say your mom is from Adelaide. How was it growing up with her? And I, of course, discovered you through your article that you wrote about growing up in Adelaide. When were you conscious that, not different because she's your mom, but how society may have viewed you because you and your sister, they may not have seen certain physical traits that were similar? Mom's always been a bit of a, a social justice warrior, and I have a memory of, I was about six years old or so, and um, one of the politicians in South Australia in the parliament there had said this comment using the N-word, he said like N in the woodpile. Oh, wow. And my mom and some of her friends were very outraged and we actually went to parliament the next day and mum was protesting, like yelling out in parliament about that. And we ended up getting kicked out of the viewing because you can go and I don't know what it's like in the States, but you can go in and watch, you know, as they're speaking. So when she was kind of calling stuff out about, you know, it's wrong and we were kicked out. And so I remember like those moments and conversations, I guess, around like race and difference. But at the same time, I always knew I was different, but at the same time, I didn't see myself as different in some ways because I was raised by a white mom in Australia. So my sense of culture and identity was as an Australian person. I didn't have any kind of Ghanaian cultural reference points to make me different from other people. It was the difference was in the color of my skin, but in every other way I was integrated into society. Before I started losing my hair, I, you know, when I was younger, I had a Afro and people white people on the street would come up and just start touching my hair or my sister's hair because they'd never seen anything like that before. And there wasn't even an asking of myself or my mom if that was okay. They'd just start, oh, my God, I haven't seen that kind of hair. This doesn't feel amazing. So, you know, that reminder of being a little bit different. Well, I'm at a school dance, and I think I might have mentioned in my article, someone didn't want to dance or touch my skin because of the colour of my skin. She felt like it was dirty. And then as I got a little bit older and starting to um, explore my sexuality and, and meeting men, guys, and having experiences, but like always this kind of, say, fetishization because of the color of my skin, all the things that go with that. And then like it's starting to develop more now, but around people around, you know, in my kind of late 30s, 40s, that kind of age and beyond, there aren't a lot of people that, born and raised in Australia with non-white migrant parent backgrounds. You know, when I talk, when I was younger, some people would be surprised that I had the Aussie accent because they would they were expecting me to not have that. I'm intrigued as to, you know, and this is me trying to dissect, I guess, racism or, or ignorance in some ways 
uh, well, this this person, you, you and your sister, you are Australian. Your mom is Australian. Why wouldn't you be Australian? <laughs> but, you know, that's me simplifying things I know. The access to information to understand, like, culture and heritage and identity is obviously so different now. As a young person, you just kind of carry on with things. Whereas now I'm so much more aware of it, but actually kind of, I guess I notice more about like the unconscious biases and things that go on that can impact people of color, whether it's in the workplace or in relationships or personally, that kind of thing. Whereas obviously when I was younger, I didn't think of those things in those ways. And um, so I wouldn't have understood or why was that person in the shop speaking to me rudely, but spoke to one of my friends nicely and think, oh, what have I done wrong? No, I, I get that. Yeah, I um, Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona. That's not known for having a lot of black people. And then too, I grew up very, in some ways, sheltered. You know, and I moved to LA for acting. I was attempting mm-hmm. to do that when I first moved there, and I, I was going on auditions. And I can laugh at my ignorance or naivete later, but I didn't understand because I truly didn't connect when they would ask me, "Well, can you do different accents?" And then eventually someone said, oh, they mean they want to know if you could speak more, whatever the term is at the time, urban or street. I was like, aha, okay. (laughs) That just went right over my head. (laughs) Yeah, you're like, oh, they don't want the uh, New York accent. They want something else. (laughs) I know you're from Arizona, but we don't care. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) This is not how we usually represent people that look like you. You also mentioned about your awareness of realizing that you're gay. At what age did you become aware of that's part of who you are? I was very young. I Well, young to me. I was about 12 or 13 at that point. And I remember the distinct moment. Like I had crushes on my high school friends and things like that. But I remember at the supermarket, there was a magazine at the checkout counter and it was Ricky Martin and he was shirtless sitting on the front cover. I was like, ah, he's so hot. And um, I remember going home and writing in my journal about how I thought he was hot. And very soon after that, which is a horrible portrayal, someone read my journal in my family, either my mum or my sister. I think it was my mum. And so then these constant questions came about like, are you gay? Are you gay? And um, I wasn't understanding or ready to talk about that. I was still working through that myself. So it took about two years before, and I was 15 when I came out to my mom and my sister. Obviously, we experienced challenges with equality and discrimination and things over the years. So, like seeing those changes and campaigning and being a part of all that kind of work in you know volunteer capacity with different projects. When I was growing up, being like in Australia, Australian, it was like I am a gay man who happens to be biracial. Now my identity has shifted and I, I'm a biracial man who happens to be gay. When you were going through your own process of acceptance, were there organizations that you could go to? Uh, when I was younger or? Yeah, yeah. Like when you were released out into the wild of, of gay life. <laughs> well, in Adelaide, um, no. And I'd say that's probably still the case. I was conscious that I was quite often like one of the few people of color out. One of my best friends now, he's from Kenya, but he was studying in Adelaide for a few years. And um, we became friends in Melbourne about 15 years ago. But the first thing he said when we saw me in Melbourne was like, ah, I remember you at the clubs in Adelaide because you're the only other black guy 
at the clubs. And I was like, wow, I didn't even remember seeing you because I would remember that because it was so like such a unique or rare thing. Like I am who I am. And if someone is comfortable with that and can accept that within the, the West African community, then fantastic. And if they have an issue that I don't care, like that's on them and I just won't have much to do with them. So, um, you know, things that I do and I'm part of like West African dance class and like um, spoken word group, you know, doing poetry and things like that, which are for people of color. I'm there as a gay person of color. And there are also other gay, queer, lesbian people of color that are part of it too. And also non LGBTIQ plus people as well. For me, you know, I'm interviewing people and the focus is on the guests, but yeah, I can say for myself that in doing this, I do feel a more a sense of uh, pride and self because of relating to so many different stories that I've heard so far. So yeah, I definitely understand that. A couple of years ago, I actually stepped off a committee to establish a network for people of color and became the co-chair of that across the Victorian government and trying to pursue initiatives to give more opportunities for people of color within Victorian government to progress in leadership roles and having safe and inclusive spaces. I forgot to ask, what is your educational background? Mom was the first person in her family to go to university when she did her nursing degree. And so like that was kind of instilled in me as well. So I went and did my, we call it an arts degree here. I don't know if you have the equivalent in the US, but um, I majored in psychology and politics. Politics has always been a huge interest of mine. And then I worked for a politician after university and then went off and was doing, working in a children's prison and doing like investigations in the government. And then I took a year break and went traveling and backpacking around South America and went to New York as well and came back and was thinking, like, what do I want to do next? And I wanted to be part of like big system change in government in some way. So I then did my master's degree in public policy and management graduated at the top of the class, which was an achievement because last when I did my undergrad, I wasn't really trying as much. But this time I was like, I'm really going to put myself into it. I had assignments submitted a week before they were due, which was kind of unprecedented for me. And so, yeah, I did the master's in public policy management. Then I was looking to do a PhD, but then I kind of, I've taken a break because I, I thought I should try and make some money and pay off my university debt and revisit that at another point. So it's something that is on my radar, on my list of things to do. You mentioned your mom and, and the importance of education. And uh, as parents do, saying, I want you to do a little bit better than me. But I really like what you said and how your mom inspired you. You mentioned this in an Instagram post, I think from a couple of years ago, for your passions for reading, social justice, fairness, and equity. So yeah, to see how that just manifested into who you are and what you're doing today. It's like really great to hear that. Yeah, you've done your research as well. <laughs> Quotes and information. Yeah, so she was very influential on some of the decisions I made and my care for, for others and social justice and those things. Working in government, when did that start? If you want to make that kind of systemic, big picture systems change, then it comes from government because that's where the money sits and um, influence policy and programs and that influenced the studies that I took and then influenced um, me landing in government. Doing mostly pro uh, policy work, some project staff, auditing, like a range of different roles. The common link is it always has to be 
for purpose. You can say that about government generally is for purpose, but you know, my interests are more around that kind of human services space as opposed to environmental transport. How can we work to better the lives of people directly, particularly people that are kind of traditionally excluded or underrepresented or miss out on opportunities, various opportunities. And when did you found Every Minority? And can you share about that organization? Yeah, Every Minority came about in 2021. I've always had this interest in, in writing and, and had good feedback about my writing and things like that. Creative writing, I should say, not writing briefs and boring things at work. During one of the lockdowns we had here, there was a writing competition for one of our national broadcasters that wanted people to submit their stories about being diverse in Australia. So whatever that meant to that person. So I submitted my story around being a a gay person of color in Australia, growing up in Adelaide. And I didn't win that. And I I only found out I didn't win because I kept Googling like updates on the uh, competition and then saw the the, put up the, the winners. I was like, okay, fine. And then a month or two after that, the company sent me an email we really liked your story and we'd like to publish it as part of like a small collection in the lead up to Mardi Gras. So that's the pride Mardi Gras in Sydney. And so I was like, of course, like that's, that's great. And so then they published a shortened version of my story on their website. And I had literally hundreds and hundreds of people messaging me afterwards, mostly in Australia, some people uh, from overseas, but a lot of Australian people like me who were from the LGBTIQ plus community and were also people of color and saying that, you know, there were parts of that story or the entire story that resonated with them and their experiences. And they wish that there were more kind of opportunities to read and share those stories. I mean, it was really lovely feedback to hear from people, but it had also been something that I had felt was missing for quite a while was that representation, it's changed a little bit since Black Lives Matter movement in Australia, but there's still a long way to go around like who's represented in, in TV or in politics or in leadership and businesses and media and all those types of things. So there are these kind of ad hoc opportunities that might come up for LGBTIQ plus people of color, but they're not consistent. And, and usually it's very segmented. It's either like as a person of color or as a LGBTIQ plus person. That's the kind of lens with some of the stories that might be shared on different platforms. So I combined the two and so um, did a little bit of a, a call out on that and had some people submit stories. And I invested a lot into that. So I paid for their stories, but I work with them on developing their stories, um, doing the edits. And then it's hard when you do something by yourself and you probably have this experience to sometimes stay motivated. And particularly at that point where we just came out of the lockdown. So it was very easy for me to kind of go like, ah, oh, I'll come back to that later. And then later became several months. I still would have people contacting me and saying like, you know, what's, when's the next story and what's going on? Cause it's, it's a needed resource. Cause the idea is people share their stories and experiences, which is hopefully comforting or validating for others that might be reading that and at different points of their identity and journey, but also where possible, try and link to like resources and information. So at the end, so if someone's thinking, oh, who can I connect with? Or well, that's me to so have some ideas there. 
And then when I went on to Hunter, the reality show recently, asking everyone what you do with the prize money and all that, I was like, well, I'd really use it to launch every minority in a bigger and better way. We didn't win, so no prize money for that. But when they announced the cast, they mentioned the site but also linked directly to it. Mm. And I was really surprised but really pleasantly surprised. I was like, okay, cool. Get moving now. So, again, like people were following the page and reaching out. And then I did a call out for stories. Had over 50 people just from one post that have either submitted stories or were asking for more information about the stories and are drafting things at the moment, which was like such an amazing response to that. I have a couple of stories now ready to go. I'm just waiting for one more and then I'll push those out. But I'm also looking at how else and what else can the site do? And I'm speaking with someone. Um, so I'm going to start spotlighting different activities and events within the kind of like what you're doing, but at a local level for um, social events that are happening for LGBTIQ plus people of color. There's someone um, in Melbourne here who is a person of color and, and queer who runs a monthly event. So kind of, you know, starting to spotlight those people. So again, if people are kind of wanting to do something or wanting to connect, that every minority can be a place where they can learn more about what is happening in the community in different parts of Australia as well. Yeah, you definitely tapped into something. I don't know if it was the July 11th post that you were referencing, but what I liked in that posting is that you asked for people who were local or in the country of Australia. I think that's important because we have the quote-unquote white gaze that is always represented or that storyline or those experiences. And I would say, and this is me being American, Black American, after that, there's the Black gay American experience, which of course is important, but I think it's more known because of American media. But we still need to know these stories that you are tapping into in Australia and other parts of the world, because it doesn't stop with those two groups. You know, it's global. It is. And it's, yeah, those stories that aren't really seen or heard. And it's so diverse within the communities, what that looks like and feels like. I love when people feel comfortable to share, to write their stories and share them because it's such a brave thing to do. And it's a privilege to read that and for someone to trust their story with me and to work with them on the editing and the way the information is presented, to be willing to put it out in the public domain for others to access. It's a really great thing. I wanted to maybe if we could touch on something a little more serious, your article that I referenced in the intro that how I discovered you, uh, you touched on some very serious topics, you know, about growing up and being queer and also being a person of color in Australia. But a more serious question I wanted to ask you is why Brittany over uh, over Kylie? (laughs) (laughs) It is the big question of life, uh, you know. Someone was actually saying that to me the other day. Um, they read the article recently. Like, Why not Kylie? <laughs> uh, maybe it's just me trying to be different. You know, like all the uh, all the gays in Adelaide love Kylie, and I'm like, oh, not Kylie. Come on, like someone else. At that point, Brittany wasn't as much of a gay icon as she is now. So I was very different. Mm. <laughs> but uh, I liked her dance moves more. I could go. I was learning them, and I could like practice and rehearse them more than Kylie's. (laughs) Although these days, to be fair, I'd probably be more Beyonce than than Britney. 
Yeah, yeah. She's at the top of the heap at the moment. Or if I guess for a while, yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Are there any people of color in the pop market or in the pop arena in Australia that are well-known? Benjamin Law is a quite well-known Australian writer who's gay and Southeast Asian, having come just been on a reality show, but I don't follow reality TV closely, but I think the winner of one of our kind of reality voice competitions last year was a First Nations queer person. Hamilton was a huge production that's been in Australia that wrapped up a couple of months ago, but there were some, again, some queer people of colour in that, which was probably part of the reason I loved it as well. I think I saw it three times when it was in Melbourne. I, off the top of my head, can't think of too many very famous, well-established LGBTIQ plus people of colour in Australia. To kind of wind down, I just wanted to touch on for two reasons. One, because it was, I don't know if it was a surprise, but it was a surprise in a way, but I'll say why it was a surprise for me is to ask about your experience with being Mr. Gay Australia and then runner up for Mr. Gay World. I came across your interview that you did on, I think it was reality checks around the time that you won. And what I liked what the interviewer said is that, and this could be just my own I don't know how to say it, prejudice or bias or assumptions, assumptions that somebody who wins those types of competitions may have a, a way about them that you feel like they're not approachable. And so when I found out about you, I related to what he said is like, oh, you seem very approachable. So I wanted to ask you about those experiences. Well, firstly, well done on fighting, because I actually had so many of the articles pulled down from websites after, because um, there was a period where I was having trouble finding a job, and I thought it had to do with employers Googling, seeing Mr. Gay Australia, and then being like, nah, we're not going to employ him. So I, I contacted a lot of websites and said, can you take this article down? Can you take this article down? So kudos to you for finding that one. Doing the Mr. Gay Australia thing was an accident. I went along to support a friend. And then when I was there, one of the judges came up and said, why don't you enter? And I thought, sure. I'd read in my horoscope that day I was going to do something out of character that would surprise friends and family. And I was like, this must be it. So I entered it. Then I won that first leg and then went and then it ended up winning the national. But I remember even in the national because the judges speak to us privately. And I did talk about representation then as well and, and just saying like, I didn't grow up with people that look like me around. So it's always, it's important for me to do something like this. And yeah, I think what you were saying about people being approachable or the kind of people that would do a competition like that, I didn't think about it too much. And maybe if I had, I wouldn't have done it because I would have been, oh, people are going to think I'm like superficial or vain or whatever. But, you know, people could also say that about doing a reality show or any of those things. But to me, it's not that. It's about opportunities and like just we only live once. And as long as it's not incredibly harmful to me there's nothing that can be lost from the experience if anything you'd re I'd regret not doing my philosophy is it's better to regret something I've done rather than something I haven't yeah it was conscious of the representation like there is that not a, a weight but I'm it's something that I do think about like even when I did the reality show going on uh, doing Mr. Gay World was like I am a gay person of color that's not something that is seen incredibly often in Australia, like those two intersections. So, um, you know, how will I come across or how will I appear and wanting to, you know, come across strongly and leave a kind of good impression. 
but for me, it was a beautiful experience. It was um, something I really enjoyed and met and connected with like all these wonderful people around the world. And yeah, one for the, for the memory banks for sure. To tie in with being Mr. Gay uh, Australia and the runner up Mr. Gay World and also doing Hunted Australia, how do you, because I know just from what I know of entertainment or what we think of as entertainment, it's a job, it's work. There's a lot of prep that's going on behind the scenes that the public may not see. But what takeaways that you get from those experiences that you can use in your professional life today? So someone contacted me on Instagram recently with a story I'd shared where I was doing a spoken word piece for the first time at a, a BIPOC space. That I feel equally inspired, but also deflated about how I live my life. And I was like, we shouldn't feel deflated because we're all contributing and doing things in great ways. And he said, oh, you're being the change you want to see in the world. And I thought that was a beautiful way of capturing kind of, and I hadn't thought about it in that way, but that's really what I am trying to do and work towards. And there's other things that I'm working on at the moment as well. Yeah, those experiences for me were around like, how can I, is it's having fun and doing something different and getting out of comfort zone to me that's important because it's very easy to get stuck into a rut and stuck into that trap and that's not naturally who I am so yeah being the change growing in my kind of self-belief and confidence and ability to back myself and also understanding that how I think and what I want to do isn't necessarily the same as everybody else and rather than thinking I need to be more like everybody else embracing that I might think differently to some other people and what that can bring to the table, you know, like something that is appropriate for me and suits me. And that's definitely the um, transition period I'm going through at the moment. Okay. I got that sense when I read the article and the title itself, you know, I'm not a homie. You're finding ways to discover your own authenticity and I think it's a great thing to do that in a public space too. And and how your sister encouraged you to to be more yourself. Like this is not who you are. Just be yourself. Yeah, it's it's been beautiful. I think that's what I've realized is I've gone from like doing perhaps what people want or expect from me because of various reasons to now saying like what is it that I want to do and what is it that I want to be. And I've never been busier or happier than I am right now in doing those things. And it's a really lovely feeling to have. It's in a similar vein to you. I know you've kind of taken breaks in career and things like that. And that's actually where I'm, I'm about to pivot to myself is to take a bit of a, a break. I think it's soon and just kind of pause and reflect and then evaluate what my next steps will be and where I'll be going to and what I'll be doing. So it's exciting times. Yeah. Look forward to, of course, continuing to stay connected with you on social media. And we are not in person, but I, I do believe there is a way to feel uh, an energy that is positive. And I definitely sense that from you. So I definitely look forward to how you grow and expand, you know, in your own personal journey, but in how you can encourage others to do the same. So, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so glad that we have connected. And I... um I've listened to a few of the podcasts, so I feel very honored to have been interviewed by you for this because you've had some really esteemed people as part of it. So it's been a real privilege and pleasure. You're a part of that now. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> now we end and ask if you have any final thoughts or insights. 
No, I think it just comes back to what I was saying before, which is, yeah, people being the change that they want to see in the world and taking that time to think, what is it for you that makes you happy? What is it that you want to do? And what is what are you doing because you think others expect that from you? And I think that can unlock the key to a lot of happiness. And importantly, when you are trying to do something, and this is a, a quote that I got from a, a contact yesterday is, you haven't failed if you haven't given up. And I think a lot of times people can feel like they try something new or different and then they say, I failed. But yeah, failure really is when you are not trying to do that thing anymore and you've moved on to something else. But if you believe in something and if you persist, then anything is possible. I like that. Thank you. Where can we engage with you online? I'm through everyminority.com. You can email me there or on Instagram, which is every underscore minority or my personal Instagram, which is at B-A-K-O-J-O. Oh, no, I changed it. It's at Byron.adu the other day. Yeah, makes it easy. All right. Well, I will definitely be sharing those. And thank you again. Yeah, definitely look forward to sharing your story with this growing community. So I thank you. No, thank you. I really appreciate it. It was really, really great. Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Share with your friends too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time.